Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. So, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Jill. Well, most of you have met Jill before. She's spoken uh, with us many times. But Jill Weber uh, is with us this morning. She has hot-footed it over, not just from Woking, where she was already, but from Canada. Um, Jill is uh, the... Uh, she founded and leads the Greater, on, Greater Ontario House of Prayer, better known as GoHop. And she is the uh, convener of the Order of the Mustard Seed, which is a, um, a religious order that's come out of 24-7 prayer. She is on the 24-7 prayer boiler room international uh, leadership team. But mostly for us, she's family. And we are just so thrilled uh, that she's here. We're really excited to hear what she's going to share with us. So why don't we welcome her together? So it's a pretty good-looking family, I think, as much as I can see you with these, these lights. I just want to pray. Is that okay? I know we've been in the presence of the Lord together in our singing and in our prayers, but I just, I'm nervous, guys, so I just need to settle my own heart. <laughs> Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. Lord, would you awaken our hearts even more to your presence in this place, to your presence deep within. Would you awaken our hearts to love? Come tap us on the shoulder. We just articulate our desire for you this morning, so we want you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for humoring me. I'm still uh, getting over the jet lag a little bit. Um, I, I was very brave. I decided that I would take the bull by the horns, and I rented a car right from the airport. And actually, I, I, I did it four years ago when I came. I made the mistake of renting a van not realizing how small your streets are and how big the vans are. And, and I drove a whole group of people for a few days. And so I would rate the, um, how well I did by how many times I bumped the curb, right? <laughs> Over there, because I'm on the wrong side and the curb is in the wrong place. So I would have like 14 curb bump days, you know. And, and I literally, my first time going on a roundabout, I went the wrong way. Because <laughs> that's how we do it in Canada, you know. And uh, I had a navigator, and so I was lost in London the first time driving here, and and I had a breathing prayer, and I was I was driving, and I was going, "Light, has, Christ as a light, illumine and guide me." That was my breathing prayer, and and then the the prayer of my navigator beside me was like, "Oh Lord, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the right." <laughs> so, so I'm very proud to say that I only bumped one curb on the way to Nottingham and back, hallelujah. And I only got honked at four times. I think, it, I think it helped that I rented the tiniest little car that they had in the lot, and I just prayed a lot. So I am getting used to, to being here and, and, and the driving. It's a little bit different than Canada, but some things feel very much the same. 
I was, uh, went to the Woking um, plant this morning, and I walked in and I went, oh, this feels like home. This feels, oh, this is really great. There's kids, you know, I mean, there's kids everywhere here too, but, but uh, I come from our little house of prayer is uh, we've been around for 16 years, and we pray and play and obey in a vulnerable but very resilient neighborhood in an industry town in Hamilton, which is just outside of Toronto. So it's a steel town where the steel industry kind of dropped, the bottom dropped out of the industry, and, and the town just fell into disarray and disrepair and generational poverty, all kinds of troubles. And uh, we've been praying it back to life in the last 16 years, and it's been amazing. So I, I have a team, I'm, I'm a, uh, an urban monastic, or a prayer missionary, or an urban missionary, or a musicianary, however you wanna describe it, and, and I have a team of about 10 people, that's our job, it's our vocation, full and part-time, and, and what we do then is we cultivate a collective of people from churches across the city who are interested in, in what I call the great experiment. And the great experiment is, what would it look like for us to give ourselves extravagantly to prayer? And what would it look like for us to actually live together and move into vulnerable neighborhoods and, and share houses together and, 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 and become the loving presence of a people of prayer in our red light district? What would it look like for us to take a, oh, you guys call them lorries, a move, I'm learning the language, a moving lorry, you know, where you put furniture and stuff in and, 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 and turn the back of it into a prayer room and park it behind a center that works with gang and street-related youth and put out a little sign saying, need prayer and spend the whole summer just praying for pastors by. What would it look like? The grand experiment. I call it new monasticism. I call it the grand experiment. And so we have this little house of prayer and... and um, Anyway, this morning felt quite familiar in Woking. It feels like there's a grand experiment going on there. I have to say this, though, to you. Um, I'm sorry to say, you're not very hospitable. Did you realize that? I know. I came. You got a week of prayer coming up, and it's full. You didn't leave me any spots. There's no empty spots. You filled up that whole week of prayer. That's okay, though, because I understand that prayer is quite portable. So I'm just going to walk around Guilford, and I'm going to pray. You can, you can fill up that prayer room if you like. I'm just going to come and pray anyways. And uh, maybe I'll pray in Starbucks or, yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> this week of prayer thing, though, I know it, we, we ask you when we do these weeks of prayer to take time out of your busy lives and out of your responsibilities. Maybe you're catching an hour of prayer before you hop on the train to London, or maybe moms, a couple of moms are gathering together and getting the kids and watching the kids tear apart the prayer room while you try and pray together over the bedlam. Been there, done that. And, um, <laughs> but it can be hard. It can be hard with our responsibilities and in our lifestyles to take the time and the space to set it aside for prayer, isn't it? It's hard. And I, I look to, when I think about that, and people say to me, oh, yeah, you have it easy. You're a prayer missionary, right? Your job is prayer. Like, I got a real life. You know, <laughs> go get a life, and then you see if you can figure out how to fit prayer into it. And, and um, we do. We have a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot going on. But it, it makes me think back to David, King David, the writer of most of the Psalms. And I think about his responsibilities as the leader of the free world in his time. And I think about... Uh, West Wing. Anybody like West Wing? 
Yeah, so it's actually, Pete, you put me on to West Wing. He had mentioned he liked it. And, well, Pete likes it. It's probably not, not terrible. So I... Uh, <laughs> So we started watching The West Wing, and I, and I think of poor Jed, you know, and he's sitting at his presidential desk, and you've got a two-minute meeting with the Russian ambassador, and then you've got a three-minute meeting, and you've got to develop national policy on this, and then you have a seven-minute meeting, and you have to stop a war in China, right? He's got all these responsibilities. He's a leader of the free world. Sorry. Um, anyway, so he thinks. So <laughs> we're in a different age now, but... Um, <laughs> I won't go there. So, um, <laughs> but think about David. He had so much responsibility. He was the leader of his people. And how on earth he had to think it through, how am I going to find a way of life that works? So here's what he did. He said, I need a prayer room. I need a prayer room. I need a prayer room. I need somewhere where 24-7 prayer is going on night and day. So that in between my three-minute meeting where I'm fixing the economy and my seven-minute meeting when I'm deciding how I'm going to battle the Amalekites, I could just go and be in the prayer room. So we, ha we have a slide, actually, somewhere in my slides of, of David's tabernacle, or what we think it might look like. There we go. It's a tent. Interestingly, there's layers of fabric um, over the tabernacle. They had all these different layers, and, um, but several of the layers were just skin, skin of, of different kinds of animals. It was a skin tent. There was linen, too, but there was skin. And he had this tent, and, and so he got prayer missionaries or musicianaries. All the missions are going, yeah, musicianaries. And, and they would stand before God's presence night and day. They had a whole bunch of them. So there was always worship. There was always prayer going on in that skin tent. And he could come, and he could step in to the presence of the Lord and inquire of the Lord. And then he would go out and he'd subdue the nations. And then he'd come in and inquire of the Lord and, and get filled up, you know, if things didn't go very well for him. And then he would go out and do his kingly stuff again. This is how he found a way of life that worked. And out of that experience, we see him writing in the next slide, or the previous slide maybe, um, out of Psalm 27, verse 4, this is what he said. And I actually think this is the inception of the three-point sermon because he says one thing, and then he goes on to say three things. <laughs> so he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Number one, that I would dwell. Everybody say dwell. dwell. I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That I would um, to, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Everybody say gaze. gaze. I would gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. Everybody say seek. He wanted to dwell he wanted to gaze. He wanted to seek. He understood. Let's go back to that slide of the skin tent, the tabernacle. This was the Hebraic understanding of the time that God was in a place. When the Lord was taking the people of Israel through the desert, Moses had a tent of meeting. And the cloud would come down and everybody would stand at the edge of their tent and they'd watch Moses go to the tent of meeting. God was in a place. And then David set up this tabernacle, and, and God was in a place. They associated God with a place. And then even in Solomon's temple, they created the temple. And then there was this moment where the Spirit of the Lord came down and filled that place. So God was present in a place. And Henry Nouwen, who's a, a, a Catholic theologian, uh, said this was the understanding of the Hebrews was that God was for us. God was in a place. There was a house of prayer that was a place. 
And I could go to that place and find provision. I could find protection. I could find the presence of the Lord in a place. That was their understanding. That was their understanding in the Old Testament. But then something dramatic and drastic happens. And God breaks history in half. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the message version. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I like that one. He moved into the neighborhood. The actual word is God, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So when Jesus, the house of prayer, becomes a person, almighty God wrapped in swaddling man. Michael Card is a lyricist. That's the word he uses. Almighty God wrapped in swaddling man. The presence of God is a person, and his name is Jesus. Incarnation, this mystery of incarnation. Somehow God has made flesh, and he enters into history. He enters into the, the human experience, and Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one presence of God is a person. It's radical. They can't even wrap their brains around it. They're slow to understand. But then he goes one step further, and, and near the end of his mystery, the end of his mystery, yeah, that's right, the end of his ministry, he looks at the disciples, and he, he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And what he is doing in that moment is he is actually calling upon their earliest tribal memory as a people. The earliest memory being that God created the heavens and the earth. And then he scooped up dirt from the ground and he breathed on it. The breath of God, the actual life. He animated man with his life, his spirit, his very self. He talks about it in his book, Dirty Glory, right? Dirt. And glory, God's breath. So Jesus is reminding them of this, of this memory in their cultural history. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then Pentecost comes and it's absolute bedlam, right? You know, there's just tongues of fire and everybody's being filled with the Holy Spirit. They think they're drunk and they're getting spilled out into the stream. It's just madness. And, they're, and you see through the rest of the, the New Testament and, and Paul's letters, they're trying to, to wrap our, their brains around this new scenario, this new way of being in the world with God. Because first of all, in the Old Testament, we saw that God was for us. And then in Jesus, we, we discovered that God is with us. They could see him. They could touch him. They could you know, uh, eat with him. But now, through the Holy Spirit, God is in us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you guys are gods. I'm not saying you're like little gods and goddesses wandering around creating your own universes, although we'd like to sometimes, wouldn't we? Uh, we are dust. <laughs> we are dust. But he has filled us with his spirit. He's given us the gift of his son and his spirit. And he's invited us into this living reality of God's spirit in us. And you see Paul, he's trying to use all kinds of words to wrap around it. He says in one place, in, in him I live and I move and I have my being. 
And somewhere else he says, in Christ, I'm a, I'm a new creation. The, the old is gone and, and the new has come. He says, I've been dead. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And then he, I, one of my favorite ones, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we hold these treasures in jars of clay. The treasure is in. So guys, the house of prayer is a person. Put your hand on your chest. Say, I'm a house of prayer. The Holy Spirit lives in me. <laughs> this is a reality theologically, guys. If we understand this, they said, Paul says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now living in you. So this is the tabernacle. This is the place of habitation. This is the place of visitation. This is where the Holy Spirit is communing with your spirit and inviting you into this conversation and this fiery furnace of affection that we call the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit just loves them all. And they're inviting you into their communion, into their conversation. And I do believe it's an invitation. You know, it says that uh, we love because he first loved us. He loved us first. And Jesus says that I, they only come, you can only come if the Father draws you. So God is the initiator of prayer. Just the fact that you have a desire, a longing to be in his presence, to have conversation with him and to be in communion with with him means that God has initiated. That is a gift from heaven given to you. So if you feel dry and if you feel barren and you feel like there's no kind of chutzpah to pray in my life, I'm just not feeling it. Pray the prayer. God, would you draw me? Would you invite me? Would you entice my heart? Make me long for you. St. Augustine talked about putting salt on our lips. Ask for the gift of hunger. God is with us, God is for us, and now God is within us. It's so important for us to reclaim this understanding that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We use that scripture primarily saying, don't do bad things. Don't let your body touch anything that's dirty, right? And that's the context of that passage. But there's an overarching, of just a more beautiful picture. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I even ask my body, I say, hey, body, how do you want to worship today? And today in the worship, I just wanted, I just, my hands wanted to go up and I wanted to move and I wanted, you know, and sometimes I want to curl up in a ball and sometimes I just want to sit and be still and sometimes I want to walk. But just, I'm beginning to understand and reclaim my body as the place of encounter. We're not good at that in the Western church, but I think it's something that we can explore. I wake up often in the morning, maybe some of you are like this, maybe not. With a song in my heart. Does anybody wake up with a little tune kind of rolling around? And um, more often than not, it's, it's some kind of worship something or, or even another song that just kind of speaks to me of the reality of who God is. And, and my theory, I have a theory. Do you want to hear my theory? My theory is that the Holy Spirit that lives in me, remember, is always in communion with the Father, which means he's always worshiping. And so when I wake up in the morning and my defenses are down, I get to tune into the frequency of the Holy Spirit adoring the Father. Isn't that great? I'm like, that's awesome. 
And so I take that song and I take it into my day and I take it through my day and I let it kind of ring around my day with me. And um, yeah, I just, I love that. I want to talk a little bit more about this tabernacle this of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to call it the soul. And one of my teachers in the area of, of spiritual formation, which is essentially discipleship, growing in Jesus, um, her name's Ruth Haley Barton, and here's how she defines the soul. She says, the soul is the part of you that is the most real, the essence of you. So that's the part of me that goes beyond my job title and my job description. It goes beyond that part of me that's defined by my relationships as mother and wife and director of a house of prayer, a best. That soul is that essential part of me. It's, the soul is, is the part of me where that Abba cry comes from, Father. The soul is the part of me that, that wants to say really deep, honest things to God. The soul is the part of me that I live with when I am obscure <laughs> and a failure and when I'm not obscure and when I'm doing well. That's a part of me that's beyond those definitions. And the soul is that part of me that longs for more of God than I have right now. That's the place of the soul. And let's, let's go to the next slide. I want to talk about the soul. And, and the language of metaphor really is required when talking about the soul because it's a mystery. These things are mysterious. Sometimes the soul is like a cathedral. When I was 40, my mom took me to Paris for my birthday. Cool, I got an awesome mom. <laughs> anyway, she's like, let's go to Paris. So we went to Paris, and we were staying um, right by Notre Dame Cathedral. It was so great. I would get up early in the morning, as was my custom. And I, would, I went to the cathedral, and beautiful high vaulting ceilings. And I found a statue of Joan of Arc. I thought Joan was pretty cool, right? female leader, she hears the Lord, she does crazy things. It was good. There was this big statue of Joan on a horse. And me and Joan, we would hang out in the cathedral every morning. It was like we would, we would, we would hang out together, be with Jesus. And then I would go, and in my terrible French, would try and order a croissant and a, and a coffee to take back to my mom. But I love the cathedral, this because they're built to, to make you think of heaven. The ceilings are, are vaulted. There's just lots of light. There's lots of air. And, and I would argue that the soul... Your soul is like a cathedral. And I want to tell you something. You are bigger and brighter on the inside than you think you are. You're bigger on the inside. Teresa of Avila was a, a mystic in the 15th or 16th century. And she, she wrote this whole book called Interior Castle. She pictured the soul like this big palace with room upon room upon room and layer upon layer and right in the middle is this burning furnace of the presence of Jesus. And so this, this again, we're going to use our imagination for a section, for a, a second to picture your soul like a cathedral, but then the walls, and cathedral walls often would have uh, stained glass, right? Because they built them before people knew how to read so that the, the glass would tell the stories of Jesus, and just imagine that on the wall of your soul cathedral, there is stained glass of all your stories with him, of your life with him. And what would it be like for you to be so lit from within, so illuminated by the presence of God, that light 
would shine out from all of those windows for all to see his goodness and his faithfulness in your life and in your story together. Sometimes the soul is like a cathedral. Sometimes the soul is like a desert. Let's go to our next slide. Anybody relate to this? Yeah, my soul's been like a desert. <laughs> I had lots of times when I was on the backside of the desert, and the desert is barren, and it's stark, and it's beautiful. I'm heading up, actually, to Iona next weekend, uh, which is really the desert in Scotland, right? There's rocks, and there's water, and there's sheep, right? And rain, lots of rain. That's Iona. <laughs> That's the desert up there. And, uh, but we've all been in these desert places on the inside where it just feels barren. But sometimes, sometimes in the desert, rain will come. And when the rain comes, all of a sudden, what looked like was barren and infertile suddenly blooms, suddenly comes to life. And sometimes in the desert, we're just kind of wandering around in the desert going, I'm on the backside of the desert. I don't know what's going on here. This is lonely and it's hard. And, oh. and then sometimes there's a burning bush. <laughs> And sometimes something unusual happens and we're invited to step aside and pay attention to the presence of God in the desert of our soul. Sometimes the soul is like a desert. Sometimes the soul is like a garden. Next slide. I was introduced to the book of Song of Solomon in summer camp because the 14-year-old boys thought it was dirty, so they loved reading it to each other. So it's a book of poetry in the Old Testament. And it's this beautiful, evocative love poetry from the lover to the beloved. And of course, commentaries and theologians say it's, it's foreshadowing. It's talking about Christ and his church and, and uh, just the affection that they have for one another. Tender, loving affection. But the analogy that's often used in the Song of Solomon is that of a garden. And in, in, in this, this one passage, the beloved, the church, his body, says to the lover, says to Jesus, would you come into my garden? Would you come and see if the fruit is ripe? Would you just come and taste and see of the goodness of what you actually have planted in my life? Because this is what he does, doesn't he, with our souls. He, he, he plants things in us. And then he waters it and it grows up. And I actually think that our souls are like a, an English garden kind of chaotic and wild and woolly and bits everywhere. And I think that's how he likes it. <laughs> but he wants to commune with us there. You know, we cultivate these things as best we can, but really it's God who makes it grow up within us. But he, the soul is sometimes like a garden, and we can, like Adam, walk in the garden in the cool of the day and commune with him. I want to take us back to David. So David understood in that passage, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. He's talking about a place. Or is he? Let's pull that passage through that New Testament reality of Jesus coming and incarnating and, and now the Holy Spirit coming and infilling. And so when we look at that scripture and when we bring it into our lives in the present reality of who we are with God, we could say, God... One thing I ask of you, this is what I seek. I want to dwell in your house. Your house, here. I want to live in the skin that I'm in. 
I actually want to settle into my life and my life experience and who you've created me to be, and I want to meet you there. Can I live in the present moment, not fussing about the past or fretting about the future? Can I be here now with the I am that I am? Can I dwell in your house? Can I fully inhabit this moment, this day, where you are here present with me? Can I set aside those things that, that numb me out? Can I stop scrolling on my damn phone for a minute? Can I unplug from Netflix? and <laughs> Can I just be in the moment here with you? Can I dwell in your house? Can I gaze on your beauty? I like to walk in the morning. I, um, I'm a lark, not an owl. I say that uh, the early bird gets the anointing. And... <laughs> So I get up in the morning and I walk by the water in my town and I, I love to watch the sunrise kiss the edge of the earth. I look at it and I say, oh God, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. All of creation is shouting the glory of God. And then I come to church and I, I came, of course, to the, the woking service first and your church is awesome because you do croissants. And sometimes even if you get there early enough, you get chocolate croissants. <laughs> and so you see these little toddler who obviously got the chocolate croissant because his face is like a mash of chocolate and he's all twinkly-eyed and sticky-fingered. And you look at that little child and you go, this child is crafted and created in the image of God. He's an image bearer. God, aren't you beautiful? Aren't you beautiful? Just look around, folks. And then when we worship together, I love worshiping here with you. And in the worship, our voices entwine together. And our incense goes up. And God himself inhabits our praises as a people who individually and corporately are a tabernacle of his spirit. And in that moment, you're like, oh. You're beautiful. I'm not talking about just glancing at his beauty. I'm talking about gazing. God, can I give you my attention? Can I be wholehearted? Can I just stop and pause and look a minute and ponder at how your beauty is being displayed in this moment through these people in this place? And ladies, I have, I've got news. This is important beauty information. Just anybody who's Probably not many of you over 40. Oh, well, okay. Well, keep it in mind for the future. But um, <laughs> actually, studies have been done that, that natural beauty will take you to about 40. Um, and then beyond that, it's what you think about. And it's what you meditate on. That I've actually done scientific studies that that will. So if you can tell if somebody frets and fusses and is anxious because you see it on their face, right? You could see if somebody had deep, long suffering, you could see it on your face. So women, those who look to him are radiant. Men too, I know, but you're not as concerned about being beautiful after 40 as we are. So I get it, but <laughs> that's your tip. That's your beauty tip for him. Those who look to him are radiant. <laughs> Let's gaze on his beauty. 
And then let's seek him in his temple. I don't know about you guys, but I am not smart enough for my life and the present assignment that God has given me. I just don't have enough brain cells. I'm a middle-aged woman, and I feel my brain cells dying every single day. <laughs> They're going. I can feel it. And, and I, just, I just really literally do not have what it takes to be able to function in the responsibilities that God has given me. So I have to inquire. I have to seek him in his temple. I'm like, God, I don't know how to do this, but you know how to do this. This is way beyond me. I don't have a clue, Lord. Help me. And I want to stand in the counsel of the Almighty. I want to seek him in his temple so that I can see what he's doing. And I can step into it with the fullness of confidence knowing that it's God in me <laughs> who's at work. Revealing himself. Making all things new. This is the invitation. I mean, we had in the Old Testament, God is for us. And then in Jesus, he's with us. But now, everybody, he's within us. And sometimes our souls are cathedrals. <laughs> and sometimes our souls are deserts. Sometimes our souls are gardens. In every season of the soul, God will meet you there. Because he's nearer to you than you could ever imagine. The last slide, there was a 17th century mystic, St. Theophan the Recluse. And he says, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart. And there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seeing within you. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this great gift of your indwelling spirit. We thank you that you are nearer to us than we could ever conceive. And so, Father, I'm asking for this people, these people who are filled with your presence, may we be awake and alive to your presence within us. God, save us from distractions. Save us from the things that numb us down and dumb us down and pull our hearts away from you. Jesus, teach us to pray. Amen and amen.